Hello, everybody. This is Jay Lights, and you are listening to Null Point, which may have been a mistake today. Uh, but first, my co-host, Sedgik, say something. Woo. <laughs> Woo. Woo works for sure. Um, yeah, I'm like super tired and out of it today. I've uh, been driving most of the weekend and, well, not most of the weekend, but driving significantly this weekend back and forth to St. Louis and I'm just a little bit knackered as a result, but uh, I wanted to do the podcast. And I am slowly melting. <laughs> this is this, the lack of air conditioning on your side, right, is what's going on over there? Yeah. Man. Yeah, it's been like a, a hundred all week, and for whatever reason, they're not required to have air conditioning in the buildings out here. Boy, howdy. That's crazy. Really? I thought that, I thought that was a national thing. I guess not. So they're not required to have air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Nope. Uh, and it's been like a hundred, and low point of humidity has been 60%. What, what so backwater little tiny town in the middle of nowhere do you live in, anyway? Oh, that's uh, right. You know, just <laughs> the West Coast. <laughs> You live on the entire West Coast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I make this I don't joke. Think anyone I, on the West Coast I, is required to use AC. I guess Southern. Yeah, right? like Arizona does. I know that much. Um, yeah, I forget they're not on the coast. I for, I forgot that you don't want to say um, exactly what town that you're in because it's such a small place. I'm worried people would find you. Uh, but yes, just, it's a, it's a very small town. Very small no town. No one has ever heard of it. Yeah. Definitely hasn't had a web comic in, set in it. Or, or series, web series. Anyway, the point is, is like fill yeah. in a city like Seattle and the joke still works. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I don't think Seattle is required to have AC. I think San Francisco doesn't have it either. I don't know. I don't remember. I, I was born in the Bay Area, but I, I do not remember what housing laws were because we moved out when I was eight. And you don't remember those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was uh, I was up to St. Louis and back again, super tired, just taking the nieces back, one of the nieces back and picking up another one of the nieces and bringing her down with me. Um, had a weird attack from a dog that I'm just, just going to leave that story just kind of hanging there because it's weird. But yeah. Dogs are weird. And yet you bring it up. I do bring it up just because I want people to wonder what happened. If we're ever famous, this will be the story. People are like, I wonder what that story is. And so by the time somebody asks, I'll be like, I don't remember. It was something. <laughs> it's just a shame that the recording we have of that got lost. And yeah, uh, somewhere in the ether, it just kind of disappeared. Nobody's going to hear about what that dog did. Strange. <laughs> but I will say... Um, I was down there and my, my sister and her, uh, her kids have gotten into skateboarding, which is way cool. Um, so we mm-hmm. went to, we went to a skate shop when I was down there, just kind of hung out for a little while. It was a big old, like there's a, there's an abandoned mall in uh, Chesterfield, which is one of the suburbs of St. Louis for anybody who doesn't know, which is probably most people. And, uh, they've got this mall that's just like mostly abandoned. So they kind of rent out some of the stores just like it must be dirt cheap but this i swear the skate shop has taken over an old jc pennies and like it's part of it's an actual store with a bunch of a whole bunch of skateboards in it and the other half is a skate park and if you're in the st louis area and you want to take up skating go find this place i forget its name but it's at the chesterfield mall so it should be pretty easy to find <laughs> but my sister's been taking this up it was really it was fun it was like going back to when i was a teenager honestly walking into that skate shop because there's a lot of stuff that like reminded me of 90s skating they had a no fear shirt i was like wow i haven't seen that one of those in 
forever. It's, it's been a while. It's been a while. So noise. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, then came back today and am not quite dead, like the uh, like the Black Knight and Monty Python. I'm not quite dead. Uh, no wait, which one? What none shall pass. He says just a flesh wound is what he says. Pardon me. Yeah, I think you're thinking of the Princess bubonic. Bride. No. There's a big difference between dead and almost dead. This is true. That's not, but the, I, I actually was, there's a scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where they've got a plague victim and he's saying he's not quite dead yet. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I was going for, but I'm tired. So, <laughs> uh, what if they're all dead? They just got to go through their pockets through loose change. But I'm, you know, the classic Monty Python skit from Princess Bride. <laughs> mm. Oh, man. Just all over the place on that sort of stuff. So, yeah, back here now and ready to really screw up this podcast as much as I possibly can. Um, we're going to do like this one's going to be short, which you're probably going to have noticed by opening it up, assuming you've listened to anything before, which by the way, if you're one of our, our folks that comes back regularly, really appreciate it. Uh, spread the news of the fact that there's this mediocre podcast that other people can listen to because, you know, we're, we're extremely small still. So any, any help is helpful, <laughs> but let's, uh, let's, let's get into the abbreviated news thingamajigger thingy. You wanted to talk about, there's something that war, there's a Warframe thing. So you have to talk about that. Go for it. So DE, the developers of Warframe, uh, have made the biggest power play I've seen in the history of games. Really? Well, not that big. but They bought EA. Um, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they're going to I'd throw it, and they're going to throw it into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's already there. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, Warframe has a lot of crossover in its audience with Dark Souls and FromSoft. And they absolutely know this because they're releasing a new title at some point in the future. Mm. And they got the name Soulframe. Soulframe. I need a sound yeah, for that hype. That is not on the nose enough. Um, we need a hype button with an air horn. Because uh, it, it is just a fantasy title, and mm. that's about all we know about it at this point. Is it, is it still going to involve and, uh, ninja jumping? That's the first question everybody should be asking. We don't know. How do we not it's know It's going to involve pseudotech and uh, magic powers. Ooh. So that's fun. Pseudotech and magic they, powers. They got a guy with a, a bionic arm. Okay, cool. Things are going interesting. The, the trailer for it shows a lot of cheek, if you're into that. A lot of cheek, like silliness? Man butt. <laughs> so, so both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. If you're, if you're into that, dear listener, make sure you check it out. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not got quite as much man butt as Death Stranding. Okay, well, you know, uh, we need to we need a scale now of man buddiness, I, I suppose. If that if that's what we're going so for, in life. Death Stranding like tops out the man butt scale at Norman Reedus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. Me either. Like I don't even know what the joke is anymore. Uh, 
That was supposed to be the other sound, which is this one. No, no. That one, but whatever. I, you know, one of these days I'm going to mm. learn what the sounds are on the soundboard, like, really well. The, hey, there's a, the we do have a joke sound. you learn what the sounds are, I am definitely going to pay Krona to come in and shuffle them. Yeah, that'd probably be a good move, because it wouldn't be fun if I wasn't forgetting <laughs> <laughs> what all the sounds oh, are on no. here. So, is, is, so we don't know anything about this new thing, except for it's called Soul Frame, apparently. There may be some people that have, like, mined data on it. Um, DE hmm. does, like, their uh, borderline um, ARGs. And they have a website up for it where you can register your, what username you want to use. And they actively lock that behind a minigame. So <laughs> it's fun. Interesting. The entire web page is in uh, the alien language that they made for it. Oh. And to enter into the page, uh, you have to decode that language and like put a word in um, to the cipher that they have on there. Interesting. And I got it on the third try by pure luck. <laughs> I'm starting to understand why you were telling me that I should try to sign up. I, I thought you just thought I'd be interested in the game, but now I see you were trying to make my head hurt in reality. <laughs> no, it's, nah. uh, it, it's just very interesting the way that they market this. So the, Announcement came in the middle of Tenocon. So they, they do like a digital um, press event where they have like in-game lobbies and stuff that you can hang out and watch the event go on in. Mm. And I have in the past had reservations about it because it was like one of the few places that they really lean on FOMO is that like, Hey, this is a big event. Get your digital ticket. Now you can't access it. Otherwise there's going to be special items in game that you can only get here, mm. which, meh. Mm. but this time they, uh, they just dropped this in the middle of it, which is for an entirely separate product. Supposedly it's going to have the same business model as Warframe. So we'll see how focused they are. Uh, I am 100% expecting them to tie this back into Warframe at some point. That mm. is not their stated intention. Uh, DE has a long history of having just completely separate game modes that they then are like, we should actually make this into something of a coherent game, which maybe they won't do because they registered like a new title for this game rather than just putting a spaceflight mode into their existing one. But... We'll see. Uh, DE is uh, not what I would call a focused development team. <laughs> but they put out games people like, so can't really complain. Yeah. No, they get results from uh, their scattershot approach. <laughs> well, shotgun approach, something's going to hit. Yeah. One assumes. Well, that's that was a lot more about Warframe than I thought we were... Well, not Warframe, but Soulframe than I thought we were going to hear. I, I thought there was almost nothing on this. So you tricked me. I, you didn't I mean, it was mostly me. just the fact that they do weird marketing stuff. Everybody likes weird marketing stuff, I think. 
I don't know. I suppose I don't really know on that one. So, but I just feel bad because like the game I was going to talk about was F1 Manager from from Frontier Games, who also make um, uh, not Rebel Galaxy Jay. That's a totally different game. Uh, Elite Dangerous, and they're mm. they're making F1 Manager, which is coming out in August, and I'm only excited because I decided I'm an F1 fan again. So, yay. <laughs> I had, it's funny because I watched, I watched a bunch of videos this week on like different games that were coming up and I had a bunch I was excited about and I was going to write up a bunch of notes and then this weekend happened and now I'm like, well, I remember F1 manager. It's like, well, weren't you excited about any of the rest of them? It's like, I was, but I don't remember. So, (laughs) so there you go. Uh, that and cyberpunk has a big update coming, but I don't remember the details. This is why I can't talk about them. I kind of remember the games, but I don't remember why I cared. So wasn't Starfield supposed to be coming out soon? I thought they'd push that back significantly. I have no clue. I just remember that like people were talking about the date coming up and I'm like, I've not heard anything about that. And what I have heard does not fill me with confidence. Well, I mean, the first thing you need to know is that it's Bethesda and yeah, mm-hmm. not being confidence probably wise. So, Especially when they're leaning on procedural generation. Look, they're great at procedural generation, except for when they aren't. <laughs> look, CJ, when has procedural generation ever not worked for a space game? Don't worry about it. But <laughs> aside from all the times when never. it hasn't worked. Just never. It always works. Always, every time. Take a look at No Man's Sky. Flawless. Flawless. It just works. <laughs> it's like an Apple computer. Oh boy, but I'm actually looking forward to Starfield if I'm honest. I don't like it's one of those games where I'm definitely not like there's not going to be a pre-order for me for sure and it's probably going to be a mm-hmm. game where I'm not even going to touch it until people are like, "Oh yeah, this is great now." Like the the bugs have all been fixed. Cuz I feel like if I'd done that with Cyberpunk for example, like I'd like the game a lot more cuz I played it I mentioned this on the last podcast, but I played it relatively recently. It's actually a good game these days. But there's still kind of that taste from early on that's like, uh, kind of bad associations. But uh, I'm thinking with Starfield, maybe I'll wait until people are saying that all the bugs are fixed. Though maybe, maybe they'll have a flawless launch. You know, stranger things have happened. But I'm not, no, I'm not no, waiting on stranger that. Stranger things have not happened. Bethesda <laughs> with the flawless launch. <laughs> when was the last time they had a launch where nobody was complaining? Does anybody remember anymore? They haven't fixed the things people have complained about in Skyrim and they've launched that 12 times. <laughs> you'd think they'd, you'd think 12th time would be the charm, but I feel like Oblivion launched. Okay. Right. I think they didn't have the cult following until after Oblivion. Ah, uh, fair enough. So we don't know. Anyway, it'd be cool if Starfield was, was awesome. Even if it takes a few months, I'm not going to worry about it too much. I'm expecting to just see a bunch of like news, like, Oh, look at this thing that Oblivion, not that Oblivion, that, um, Bethesda put out that's all broken. It's like, that's not really shocking. But we'll see if it ends up being a good game, which hopefully it will. Anyway, that's our abbreviated not really news section. <laughs> and if you're still listening, we're now going to attempt to talk about other things. Now, there was there was a big topic that I've been thinking about during the week that I thought would be interesting to talk about. And I believe I sent it to you like a half an hour ago. So you're obviously extremely prepared on this. Um, Mm. but it's just like the idea that, um, oh, do we need an intro for this? That makes it sound like we're being thoughtful, right? Is that a good intro for, we're going to talk about something interesting, hopefully? Eh, you know, something interesting, something sparkly. 
right? Interesting and sparkly. See, I'm learning where these things are. <laughs> so I'm I'm big into sports ball in the real world. Uh, well, not I can't say I'm. Well, it's hard to say these days because when I was in college, I was way into sports ball and could follow. Like I followed all the sports. ESPN was my homepage and just like was always learning about the sports balls. But these days it's kind of paired back to just a few different sports. Um, Formula One and Major League Baseball are really what I follow these days. There's no ball in Formula One. There probably is somewhere, like a ball bearing maybe. Though, if we added a ball to Formula One, we could have real life Rocket League. This is true. Actually, that's a good idea. We'll have to suggest that. But this actually, I wanted to talk about what I've been noticing in MLB and F1 regarding rule changes, which, you know, nothing as drastic as adding a ball to Formula One. As exciting as that would be. Um, I feel like it missed the spirit of the thing, <laughs> which is just to go fast in a circle that has many kinks in it. But what I've been kind of noticing when I've been following baseball and Formula One over the last several years is they've. there was a time, a long time ago, like we're talking 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and even the 90s a little bit, where a lot of the changes that they made were like big ones. Because somebody would come in, like in Formula One, you'd have somebody show up and they'd introduce this crazy technology and they'd win a whole bunch of races. And Formula One would be like, yeah, that's illegal now because apparently nobody else can do it. And we've just decided it's not fair. So we're going to get rid of it. So you, you had a lot of rules that would show up because it, it was considered unfair to competition, but like they'd be big, broad, sweeping changes. And the same thing is somewhat true of baseball. Like you'd only really get, they, they really didn't make a lot of changes to baseball for a very long time. And the, anytime, the only time that you'd see rules made in baseball is when they were banning something, you know, like you're not allowed to use a bat with too much pine tar in it for anybody who remembers George Brett from the 80s. Um, or you're not allowed to use a bat that's got cork in it, or you're not allowed to, you know, have uh, any number of like massive advantages they, they're not allowed to have anymore. And what I've noticed over the last few years is more, more and more sports, well, at least Formula One and baseball, are kind of evolving their rules rather than making big rules that are about fair competition and you're not allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z because it's clearly unfair. They're starting to make like regulatory changes that are small, like a couple of really good examples. Um, one of them would be this year in baseball. They've changed how the baseball is made so that it goes like when, when it's hit, it has like one or 2% less energy from what it had before. And that's like a small, small little change, right? But it's had a huge impact on how many home runs are hit because a lot of home runs are hit just like a little bit beyond the outfield wall. And since the ball's carrying just like, you know, 96, 97% of the energy that it used to carry, that means that there's actually a fairly smaller number of home runs these days. The players are talking about how the ball just kind of dies in the outfield and it'll fall into the outfielder's gloves. As a result, the players are having to focus a little bit more on trying to hit line drives, you know, just base hits, basically, just trying to get on base rather than trying to hit home runs all the time. But this is all because of a relatively small change, which kind of feels like, like a balance change. Um, Another one that's interesting is in Formula One this year, they've got a new set of regulations for the cars. Now, this was a little bit of a bigger change compared to prior seasons. But what they did is they made it so that the cars, uh, they changed up how they get grip. So if you're not aware, when you're doing racing, it's really important that the car have good grip. Otherwise, it can't turn. It just kind of keeps going straight when the road turns. And I think everybody would agree that's not optimal. (laughs) So you want the car to turn. 
And they've changed up how grip works so that the underside of the car is allowed to produce a lot more downforce than it used to be able to. And the reason they changed it was not because they wanted the cars to necessarily have more grip, but it's because they wanted the cars to rely on under the car grip because that downforce that goes under the car can't be disturbed by other cars. Because other cars, as they're driving through the air, they make a giant wake behind them in the air. Kind of like when you see a boat go by, it leaves a wake. Cars leave wakes in the air. And that would mess up the cars behind them because when you drive through a wake, you have less downforce, you can't turn as well. And it made it so that the cars couldn't follow each other very closely. And they were like, this is bad. We want cars to be able to follow each other as closely as possible so that they can pass each other more and it's more interesting to watch. Um, And they did that and it worked. But what's interesting to me is not necessarily the technical side of the change, but is the nature of the change. Because it's kind of like the baseball change. There's this kind of viewer aspect and you know, kind of like small adjustments to make the game more interesting. You want baseball is a little bit more interesting when it's more than just home runs. You know, when you've got runners on first and second and you're trying to score from there and it just makes more tension. Same thing with Formula One racing. These little tiny adjustments make so that the cars are racing closer to each other, which kind of creates tension. It's more fun to watch. And it makes the game more interesting for the players as well. A lot of the Formula One guys are super happy about the changes because it makes the race more fun for them. But okay, so this is how this ties back to games. <laughs> now that I've said all of that, the changes used to be big. We're going to make things illegal sorts of changes. And these days, the changes seem to be small and iterative and like they make small changes between seasons and they almost feel like they shouldn't be noticeable. The only reason that they can, they can tell there's a difference is because they have so much data that they can bring in um, that they can see the changes over a large group of people you know, and so they're able to make these smaller changes. And it just, it reminds me so much of what they do in games like Final Fantasy 14 or, or uh, World of Warcraft, these big MMOs where you have all these classes and you've got to balance them against each other. Uh, another good example would be League of Legends, where you've got to balance a whole bunch of different classes against each other. And they, they make these little tiny changes all the time to try to improve things. And I kind of find myself wondering if real life sports are being influenced by the design practices and iterative practices that online games have, you know, this is where I pause and let you say something, Cedric. Sorry. (laughs) I feel like we've had this conversation before though, because a couple of years ago, I remember there being articles coming out about how one of the racing programs was putting in, Mario Kart-esque rules and logic, and they were going to digitize it and put throttles on the cars so that if they drove in the green zones, they could go faster. If they drove in the red zones, they could slow down. That is Formula E. Cheering is going to make the cars go faster now. Formula, that was Formula E, and you actually could get a, you could get a boost by getting the most upvotes on like Twitter or something. Like they, they had polls on Twitter, and if you had the most people vote through this poll somehow. I yeah. don't remember how this worked, but you, you you could get a boost from that too. You could get an extra boost out of that. People decided and that was it, a bit it much. Feels like, <laughs> it feels like they saw the success that games and the more engagement focused side of mm-hmm. um, entertainment, they saw that engagement that they were getting and wanted to have that in their product. So they didn't understand anything about it. And they're like, we're going to take it straight from games that are related to us and put it into our stuff. Yeah. And that blew up in their face and they're like, fine, we'll hire someone that 
can actually think about it. And I, w- I wonder now I wonder. we're seeing those changes. I wonder because to be fair, Formula E and Formula One don't have a lot to do with each other. In fact, Formula E liked to basically act like it was the future of motorsports and would make fun of Formula One all the time. Um, mm. And I, I feel like their desire to try to gamify the racing a little bit more was part of that effort. And I don't know if they're still doing it. I, I don't hear about it anymore, at least. Maybe it is still part of it. But most race fans are not interested in that sort of gamification uh, of the sport. But um, as much as like adopting that sort of thing, like you were saying, that sort of thing's like not super interesting. But bringing in people who actually do game design work and saying, hey, could you come balance the racing a little bit? Probably would be smart. I wonder if it's happened. What if there's this major story about this and I just haven't read it and like, like we're just hashing over something that is well understood by somebody. Oh, I'm sure someone knows it better than us, but, uh, <laughs> but we're not one. recording right now. That's so. true. They're not the ones in the room right now, but yeah, I, I feel yeah. like, I feel like a lot of sports could benefit from that. Anyway, go ahead. You were going to say something. I'm not a hundred percent sure that it has to do so much with game design being something that they're actively looking for. You had mentioned in the section before that it could have also just been the people that are in the workforce now are ones that grew up with games, online games and these incremental changes and are more accustomed to it. But it's also just true that companies are pushing more towards that as all fields of tech start to become more about continuous delivery. Hmm. You don't really get as many game releases so much as you do updates. Yeah. Is it in, especially in, in things that are so set in their one title as something like baseball, you're not going to see baseball two released. Although we all know that's going to be here eventually. I think it's called burns ball. (laughs) Um, Reaching for the Futurama jokes. Oh yeah. Yeah. There we go. (laughs) Or it should really be. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) But I'd, I'd agree. I, I wonder then with you saying that, I wonder if really what's driving these sorts of changes is less to do with uh, being influenced by games necessarily and more being influenced by the same thing that's influencing games, which I guess would be big data. Like you can get so many analytics back from how players are playing games because it's relatively easy to do, especially with an MMO where you can record every player action if you want. Um, I wonder if, if, because I know that influences especially long-term game projects quite a bit. And I wonder if that's just what's happening in sports as well, is they're like gathering bunches of data about what people think about all these things. And then they're kind of gathering data from the game itself. Because you, man, with with um, with StatCast these days, which I don't know why they call it StatCast because it has nothing to do with stats, but they can capture like in baseball, the speed of the ball, the break of the ball when it's being pitched, like exit velocity for off the bat, bat speed, where the ball was thrown, like all these things. And they can take all that data and crunch it down. And if you know enough about what's going on, then you can make a small adjustment, like changing the ball just ever so slightly so that it doesn't fly quite as far and have a giant impact on the game even though the change is almost imperceptible to anybody who's watching the game, you know, whereas if you went to blurn ball rules, people would notice that things had changed. (laughs) It's just, just a little bit. Maybe, maybe (laughs) it's that 
boiling the the frog alive thing, you know. You just got to change things a little bit. First, add the um, elastic band to the ball. That's step one, right? Uh, that was part of Blurn Ball, I think. I don't remember. It was a very I think they'll game. start getting more and more fanfare as things are hit. <laughs> and then that turns into like putting live explosives on the field. There we go. Okay. Fair enough. But I do also think that there's the consideration that for most of these sports history, you always had a general framework of rules that was going on. Mm. And then people brought their skills, their knowledge, their know-how and their talents to it and did what they could. Mm. And I feel like now it's also getting to a point where because they have that big data, because it's been in there for so long, because it is so competitive, people are less willing to allow for outside influence. So then you're getting into a situation more akin to like a trading card game where every single piece of material is either regulated or produced by the people that make the rules. Hmm. And at that point, you don't really get as many big sweeping changes because everything is tracked, everything is interconnected and outside uh contributions to the game stop being innovative and hey look at this thing they're changing the way the game is played and turns into they're breaking the rules and sometimes that was always the way that it was before because sometimes they're just being cheeky about it they don't believe that the game should be played that way and they're making a point yes it's interesting because like there are definite parallels to that in, in the sports we've been talking about. Like, for example, the pitcher's mound's always been, is it six, six feet, six inches? Somebody will correct me. Um, or nobody will correct me, and I'll just look it up later. But the pitching mound has always been a certain distance from the plate. Um, pitchers throw harder than they've ever been able to these days, like significantly. And it's been mm-hmm. mentioned on more than one occasion that if you push the pitcher's mound back like a couple feet, it would actually give the humans who are playing the game um, a, a decent amount more because people are like well what difference is two feet going to make well it turns out that like there's you know the amount of time it takes the eyes to understand that the ball's being thrown and then there's the amount of time it takes you to swing which is a physical motion so that also takes time and then there's the little span of time between when you've got to start swinging and when your eye finally understands what the ball's doing that little tiny span of time um is very very small and it's what makes a major league player a major league player takes it from prediction to a split second decision. Yeah. And we're slowly getting to the point of there's no time and you really have to just mm-hmm. kind of think to yourself, where do I think the pitcher is going to throw it? Cause I'm going to start swinging in that direction. And if I notice it's different, I'll try to adjust while I'm swinging, but it's, it's not going to be a great swing at that point. Um, even just moving the, cause the, the space is something like a foot and a half. So if you move, people think that like moving the mound back two feet won't make a difference, but taking that zone from a foot and a half to like three feet or a meter for those of you who are, who are international, um, that's, that'd be a huge thing. <laughs> that'd be massive. So, but people, I, people hate it. People hate the idea because they don't, it's not how you play the game. You're not supposed to push the mound back. It's it's supposed to look a particular way. I don't way. know that you'd want to push the mound back, even just assuming you get the exact effect you're talking about where it's like it just takes it out of that 
and gives people time to react. Mm. Because when you look at something like fighting games and um, really fighting games is the main thing here because I, I was going to bring up Dark Souls. Sometimes you got to like parry in advance based on what you think they're going to do. Mm-hmm. That's not as interesting because it's you versus a computer. Fighting games get really interesting though in that it's all about very, very minute amount of time, knowing the exact amount of time it takes someone to do something mm-hmm. and then trying to bait them into doing something that you know you can get frame advantage on where they can't respond and that gives you time to do something else. Mm. And it creates a lot of tension and rock, paper, scissors mechanics, a lot of fake outs, trying to just get people, get in their head and really gives a psychological tension to it that isn't there otherwise. And to be fair, that's not something that you can really see when you're playing fighting games or when you're watching fighting games, unless you also play them. If you see people in like Smash Brothers or some of the more um, positional oriented fighting games, you just see people fidgeting back and forth. You're like, what the fuck are they doing? This is boring. Why are they doing it? If you play it, you're sitting there and you're just like, Who's going to make the first move? Who's going to commit? Who's going to make a mistake and step a little too close to the enemy? And that kind of tension, I think, exists in baseball right now. The batter and the pitcher squaring off against one another. Mm. And I think that is also part of the mystique around baseball is that it is so focused on those two people for at least a portion of the game. And I'm not sure how much that would be in play if you lowered the skill floor to the point where um, the average baseball player could get a good bat based on reaction. Hmm. I will say, firstly, that that's the most novel argument I've ever heard for not moving the the mound back. We've we've linked it to fighting <laughs> games. We've we've linked it to um, Smash. Uh, oh, how did I? This is my brain today. Smash. It's not Smash Brothers. Is it Smash Brothers? Yeah, Super Smash Brothers. Jeez, here I am. I, I'm getting it right, and I doubt myself. So that's a very novel argument, and I like it quite a bit. But to to take it to your underlying argument, which is that you don't want to, you you want it to be a bit of a guessing game. I think I'd agree with that, and I think that this is where big data would actually come in handy again, because the question is like, well. Maybe it's a little bit too close, but maybe if we move it back by six inches or eight inches or like any number of things, because it's interesting, it leads into another change that they're trying to make in baseball, which probably will be coming to the major leagues either next year or possibly the year after, which is right now, this is a weird thing to try to explain. Um, In fact, I'm not going to try to explain it completely because it just bore everybody to death, but the sum total effect is that they're going to move second base a little bit closer to first and third base by moving a little bit closer to home plate because it's actually out of position and has been for 100 years, but everybody just ignored it because it was just part of the game. Um, But they're going to move it into its proper position and then they're going to make the bases, they're currently 14 inches um, in diameter and they're going to make them 18 inches in diameter. And between all these things, first base and second base will be about a foot in two inches, I think, closer to each other, which doesn't sound Mm. like that big of a deal. But it turns out that a lot of people who are caught stealing second are about two or three inches away when they're getting caught. 
So if they've got another foot in it, foot in a couple inches, the hope is that it will really kick the stealing game up again. And the reason why, to go to what you were just talking about and to kind of talk about the the pitching thing a little bit more even, the reason why it matters is because nobody's stealing. Like nobody's stealing. And so you have to make it doable at least, (laughs) you know, it has to at least be doable. I think the concern with where pitching is right now is that it is so hard to hit that it's just impossible. And so how do you make Mm. it, how do you make it possible without getting rid of the magic you were just talking about? Because I think you captured it really well, actually. Um, I think anybody listening who is a baseball fan and hopefully also followed your argument as to why fighting games can be very fun. Um, I hope I hope they understand that and they buy into it because I think it's a really good argument for making sure that you you get that balance exactly correct because the cat and mouse game is fun. It really is very fun. In fact, it's it's led to some huge scandals. A batter who actually knows what ball what pitch is coming has a humongous advantage over somebody who's just kind of guessing. Um, and that was shown by the the Houston Astros in I believe 2016. They man, there's a whole scandal there. Go look it up on John Boy if you're listening and you're, and you're interested. But they basically were were cheating, and the batters knew what pitch was coming a lot of the time, and it gave them a humongous advantage. Uh, so the cat and mouse game is real. You're right, and is extremely important. So, and I do think that Major League Baseball is trying to fix the problem without moving the mound, if at all possible. Um, the ball is a little bit more dead, which you know, hopefully it has a little bit more drag as well. And maybe that makes the ball just minusculely slower. Um, another thing is they're, they're making it so that pitchers are not able to use super grippy substances, which they can use to spin the ball harder. Um, if they can't spin it quite as hard, then the ball's slightly more predictable, but not a lot more predictable. So like all these little tiny minuscule changes to try to keep that, that magic going to, to make it a little bit easier, but not so easy that it's just you know, that the cat and mouse game's gone because that would be bad. I think it's also, you're right. It's also worth pointing out, though, that like changes to video games have a lot more impact on the average user uh, because it goes out to everyone and is applicable to everyone. Yeah. You know, if I am playing a character and they get a 3% nerf, doesn't matter if I'm good at the game, if I'm bad at the game, that character is 3% weaker. Yeah. When you're talking about professional sports, <laughs> you're not going to notice the 2% change in the baseball until you are at the pinnacle of that sport. It's true. The same would and be true of the changes in Formula 1 we were talking about. In some ways, it doesn't really matter that much because most people interface with the game through watching and that's going to mostly be professional sports. Mm-hmm. But I think it also plays into why college level sports are so popular because you get above the worst of the chaff as yeah. far as like these people are very skilled at the game, but there's still but you're not a lot quite of hitting up yeah, against yeah, yeah. the ceiling yet. You're still, there's still a lot of variability. Random things tend to happen a lot more and it can make the game more interesting. It depends on, cause yeah. it's interesting. I've, I've felt that way about football. I don't really follow football anymore, but when I did follow football a lot, I followed pro football um, for the opposite of the reason that you're bringing up. It, well, for the converse part of it, because I, I liked watching kind of the minute differences. I didn't want to see the randomness personally, um, but yeah. I knew people who really preferred college football for that exact reason, because they knew that 
the 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 skill difference between different players could be much much bigger than it ever would be in the NFL and the the skill variation in a single player could be they could be really good at running but not very good at holding on to the ball which is a problem if you're a running back you know so again, dropping the ball is is very bad as i'm sure everybody understands this is american football by the way not not soccer um which is a lot like rugby if you're not familiar with american football you know you run if you drop the ball it's bad right so People, some people really like the randomness. Some people don't. It's funny because it almost feels like we're partitioning the game for two different fan bases, and it works well with with American football in the U.S. between college. Well, you and also see the same thing in Smash Brothers, which is the most casual fighting game that I have ever seen. Until it isn't. But <laughs> when you look at the professional players, they hate all of the casual elements. Anything that lets you come back when you're behind is so annoying to them. Mm. Any amount of randomness that the stage provides is basically taken out of the game when they're playing. If you, uh, And it, it just Nintendo. becomes about that mind game. Nintendo loves that, you know. <laughs> they support it to an extent, actually. <laughs> the reason the reason they, I say that is... They do make a, make a point to mm. actually, like, allow you to turn that stuff off. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I think I think the reason I say Nintendo and not, like, the developers of smash brothers is because i i think of the fact that like people who really like racing sims tend to despise mario kart because of mm. the fact that it's designed so that people at the back of the pack can catch up like it's designed for that whereas in a racing game like a like a really hardcore sim it's like well but they're back there for a reason and they should stay back there <laughs> You know, like if they, it'd be interesting if they, if they introduced blue turtle shells to formula one, <laughs> like if well, you're far enough behind the leaders, you hit a button and suddenly everybody, you know, position eight and above their engines just turn off for a few seconds. <laughs> so you can catch What's up. interesting though, is like, if you play with people that are actually really good at Mario Kart, doesn't matter. You can get 12 blue shells. They're still going to be in front of you. There is, there is a skill to it. I've, I know because like, I didn't believe there was a skill to it until I played somebody who was really good and they consistently kicked my butt and it didn't matter how lucky I got. It didn't matter how many blue shells I had. Is like, the most baffling part is like, you'd expect the people in front, like they're really good at using all these different mechanics. No, they're really good at racing. Yeah. Like the exact techniques that you use in a more traditional racing environment are what makes you good at Mario Kart. Uh, the only difference is that you have to manage coins, which uh, determine your throttle. Otherwise, racing lines, making sure that you're braking before turns, all that stuff is much more important than using a shell. Okay. Well, like on a, on a really basic level, I can see what you're saying. The, the part of me that follows formula one and such is like, what are you talking about? But then that comes back to what you were saying before. Like when you get to the, like the top, top level of things, um, it's, it's not about the big things anymore because everybody who races in formula one or formula two or formula three or cart series racing knows how to hit the brakes properly before a turn. So it becomes more subtle mm-hmm. the, the further up the chain you get. But, on a yeah. basic level, yes. If you're if you're good at hitting your brake point and turning in at the right time, it's going to help you no matter what kind of race you're in because the racing line is the shortest distance to do a lap in, and it doesn't it doesn't matter if you know it doesn't matter what game you're playing. That's always going to be true, and that is true of really good Mario Kart racers as well. But you know, it's interesting because like I think we're also kind of sussing out a, a different thing that you see in real life sports, and you also see in video games which is like there are some games that are more 
random and people like them for the randomosity. And there's some games that are more like precise, I guess, for, for lack of a, a better word. They have less variability. So it's more about really minute skills. Like you've got to really be able to pay attention. Like you start asking yourself questions like, um, sorry, I, I was going to, I was going to dive into something in formula one and i was like people are not going to follow that at all and i don't know how to explain it well enough but i was going to talk about turning and the importance of uh weight shifting through a corner but anyway the, the point is is that when you get into the more precise sports um those little tiny tiny differences are going to be the thing that allow you to win but that doesn't necessarily make the game better you know i think people who like mario kart as a racer or who who prefer to go back to smash brothers smash brothers over um, something like Street Fighter. Um, yeah, it's. I, I don't think it's about... I think some people associate the the harder games or the more, the more nuanced games with being like hardcore and therefore that's better because you're hardcore, but I don't know if that's true. And to bring that all the way back to baseball, yeah. maybe it is time for Burn Ball. <laughs> you know? <laughs> maybe well, you maybe we should forget about in... these subtle changes and just really go for it, you know? <laughs> You can even look at it in a, in a simpler environment. If you look at board games, yeah. um, you have games like chess, all about knowing what your opponent's going to do, all about knowing the best move. Hell, it's even basically a memorized game by this point. Yeah, in a lot of ways. To the extent that if you're playing against a professional, the best thing you can do is make a mistake because they will not know what to do sometimes. <laughs> but you're also running the risk that they recognize the mistake there, and you just there are the game. whole videos whole <laughs> videos on youtube about how to play against novice players because they do things weird <laughs> many of them but the flip side of that is something like craps where it is literally pick a number roll the dice and there's a lot of strategy around it. But at the end of the day, that element of luck makes it more accessible to everyone. Mm. And there's some people that will turn their nose up that and go, well, why would I want to do that? I have no control over this situation. This sounds horrible. And then you've got a lot of other people that are just like, but I want to see what happens. Yeah. (laughs) Plus, it just it can it can make things more interesting. It really just depends on like yeah. what kind of mind you have. Really, and in most modern board games, um, you see kind of a balance of these different things. You've got a lot of stuff that determines how good you can be at the game, but if it's targeting a broad demographic, there is always going to be randomization, mm-hmm. shuffle decks, dice throws, uh, anything that allows the better player to lose mm. is going to make that game infinitely more replayable and infinitely easier to get new people into it because right. they have a chance. So here's, here's even me, if they're going up against people that are much better. Here's me applying that logic. If I'm trying to help evolve the rules for formula one or baseball, mm. there's a vested interest from the people who are involved in the sport to stay in the sport, Right. And mm-hmm. adding elements of randomosity to baseball or to Formula One would run counter to that. And there's a lot of problems with this. Not just, uh, well, there's a lot of things that would be called problems about this, at least. Whether or not they're problems really just kind of depends on your point of view. But obviously the players wouldn't like it because it's not going to help them to to stay and to have their talent be easily recognized because right. there's a bunch of random elements being thrown in. 
which would be frustrating. I would have to agree. But it also is not yeah, great. Imagine having to watch Formula One racing where they had to build a car out of hand-me-down parts <laughs> a day I would, before the, the race. The funny thing is, is I probably would watch that because it'd be really interesting it to see what they came amazing, up with. amazing, but it would frustrate the hell out of the team. Oh, especially especially the the mechanics. But I think it'd be fun, too. Like, I used to watch uh, Cletus McFarland a lot, and they'd take random cars and just try to make them faster with random parts. And it was like, huh, this is kind of cool. Anyway... Yeah, that is that would be very interesting, but it would it would go against a few things. One of them is what I just mentioned about the skills problem and people not wanting to be dropped out of the league because their skills are not apparent because of the randomosity. But there's even more to it, which has to do with marketing. This is where we get into capitalism because we have to visit it at some point during our podcast. Otherwise, it's not our podcast. Um, but the best thing that you can have if you're trying to have a league is marketable faces and marketable brands. If you're talking about formula one, everybody knows if you're follow formula one at all, which I, I appreciate that you do not, but everybody knows who Lewis Hamilton is. Everybody knows that Vettel just announced that he's going to retire. Everybody knows who Ferrari is as a team. Everybody knows who Red Bull is as a team. Um, they're also connected with real brands in the world, which helps because if a new person comes to the sport, they're like, Oh, Ferrari, Red Bull. I know wait, why is Red Bull? Red Bull's not a car. It's a drink. Well, they've got a car, whatever. You know, they know who Mercedes is. They know who McLaren is, especially if you're in Europe, you recognize that supercar company. And there's, there's all this branding that is used to market the sport. And then it's kind of reciprocal because those brands make more money when the sport is popular and the sport makes more money when those brands are popular. If the teams are cycling out because of this randomosity we've been talking about, and if the drivers, which their faces really matter, people know who Alonso is, and who Lewis Hamilton is, and who Vettel is, and who Verstappen is, and all this sort of... Verstappen's even a meme at this point, as I recall. People know who those people are, and if they're just bouncing out of the league all the time, you're going to lose those recognizable faces. You're not going to be able to do that. What's the Netflix series they're doing? It's like Drive to Survive or something ridiculous like that. Um, you can't do the Netflix series. You can't do all these things. In fact, having that randomosity would kind of destroy the whole marketing apparatus in a lot of ways because the recognizability of the sport would be almost completely destroyed for Formula One, especially. And I think for baseball, it would have a similar effect. Okay, counterpoint. Card game tournaments. They're usually played on a best of three format and even in that situation, you still get upsets pretty regularly about this deck won the tournament because the other decks draw mm. or drew poorly, didn't get their combo, whatever. And you still see the good players rising to the top and being, you know, center points in yeah. those uh, communities because they know how to manage that randomization. They stop being the one that wins every race and start being the one that wins consistently. Uh, see, now we're talking about baseball. And, <laughs> yeah. Like it, it's true of a lot of things because the big difference between board games, video games and real life sports is that board games and video games are discrete. We can literally make sure that the same person wins every time. Yeah. Sports bit more chaotic it turns out just because they're in the real yeah. world and to be fair you're not wrong those are very good points and there is randomosity to both formula one and to baseball to baseball especially like baseball's can you considered to be having a very good season if you win 60 percent of your games 60 percent, and you're doing great you could win the world series and that's why the all the major tournaments in baseball are usually best of seven because they figure you know after seven games we're probably going to know which team is better but even then like 
you don't really know because baseball is just a lot of randomosity. But as true as that is, um, I don't think it gets rid of the fact that since the game is so nuanced, it helps it to be exclusive. You have to know the sport extremely well to perform on a major league level. Even though there's randomosity um, that does exist, you you can't just walk in off the street. Like the average person can't walk into a Formula One paddock to flip back and forth real quick, hop into a Formula One car and just drive away. Like it's not like Mario Kart right. where you can just kind of start driving the cart and if you get lucky, you you might have a good finish. You know, in Formula One, if you just hopped into the car having never driven a Formula car before, you're going to crash it in the first 10 seconds. And I'm not even joking. Like it will, that's assuming you can even get it to move because most people actually stall the engine trying to make the car move for the first time. But once you do get it moving, you're going to crash it into a wall because they're very, very hard to drive. Um, that exclusivity is kind of more what I'm, I'm getting at. There's still randomness to the games, but I feel like having the game be very, you know, very precise, where, where the rule set's very precise and there's no randomosity, so you have to kind of learn it to a really, really high degree of perfection. That's what makes it easier for there to not be shuffle inside of the people who are at yeah. the top of the pile. Um so yeah, like, but I don't know I if do that's find necessarily it interesting true, so. though that like StarCraft is something that has that level of precision. You yeah. see who is best based on a lot of metrics, probably the most recognizable actions per minute. And yeah. we're not talking about like doing a couple dozen actions in a minute, which is already impressive. No, we're talking some of these people are getting close to a thousand actions a minute. That's yeah, insane. <laughs> it's completely and insane. I just find it interesting though, that you see more rotation there than you do in professional sports. And I, I kind of wonder, well, this, this is where we'd really have to get into the capitalism because a big, part I think it comes down to safety metrics on professional sports. Really? Because it has hit the limelight, you get a lot more safety and stuff. And the main reason that people leave a lot of professional gaming, at least as far as I'm aware, is injury. Uh, you huh. get RSI, you just can't perform like you used yeah, to. Yeah, that's true. And even beyond like the Olympics, the odds of you being a professional gamer past your 20s is so low because the body just can't keep up. That's interesting. I hadn't known that. <laughs> That's very interesting, actually. As a tangent, though. <laughs> yeah. But but I'd also, I yeah. would throw in that another part of it really is the capitalisms, because in order to get into professional baseball or into professional sports, uh, in, pardon me, professional racing, there's, there's a high barrier to entry in terms of cost, especially Formula One, because like you've got to start by getting into karting, which means owning a cart, which is already thousands of mm. dollars. And then you have to have that cart and you have to be able to travel all over the place with it. And you've got to have parents who have the time and the money to take you all over the place and pay for hotels and can take time off and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Baseball, in order to get into professional baseball these days, you generally have to be on a traveling team and those cost whole bunches of money. You need, a lot of people who are professional bound have personal coaches and that's obviously not cheap. Um, now that's not to say that you don't see that in esports because I've definitely seen coaching for esports before, and I do think baseball has a lower barrier to entry than, you know, <clears throat> Formula One, <clears throat> which is just ridiculous. But I do think that the barrier to entry is still a little bit higher for um, 
<clears throat> really sorry, folks. My throat is kind of getting dry. But I do feel like the barrier to entry for um, <clears throat> baseball is still higher than it would be for e-gaming. Would, would you agree with that, or does that sound kind of off? Uh, I would say it, it's probably lower, just because the materials required to go out and start practicing baseball is going to be lower. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you need <clears throat> a stick to go out and start practicing swinging. It's not going to be great for you long term to have that quality of equipment, but that's what you need. If you want to start practicing FPS headshots, you're looking at probably minimum $300 computer. Mm. Mm. Um, but when you're talking about getting barrier to entry on the level of sports, um, it reverses because the pool of players is so much smaller for an esports environment and the ease of contacting uh, people that are looking for that type of stuff is so much higher because everyone's tech literate and True. not on their laurels about, oh, we only take from Ivy League. Um, <laughs> Something like that. Because you see that a lot in baseball where it's like, these are the baseball schools. If you didn't come from one of these well, schools, these teams won't necessarily recognize That's more you. of a football problem. Um, baseball has well, a huge football. scouting network that kind of circumvents that, but there are other problems that are still associated with it. So, so we've got, and I think even if you just look at like the player base, because the real world of sports are more well known, there is a bigger pool of people trying to get in, which means you need to dedicate that much more time to practice, True. which means that you have to have that much more time. And if you're trying to make it day to day, you don't have it. Heck, that's a lot of the reason why most people don't become professional players when they're kids. Kids love playing video games. They'll spend hours and hours and hours on it, but they need to partake in the real world because they don't have infinite money. And very few of these kids are going to be good enough out the gate to get recognized on their talent without the free time and the financial support of other people that allows them to practice. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's just one of those things where at the end of the day, capitalism does kind of restrict <laughs> people's abilities to do what they want. <laughs> Moral of the story, capitalism is evil. Well, we've, we've been all over the place. I was on this trying topic. not to get there today. but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's more just like we, we say capitalism, but this is even like an older problem than something like that. It's just, you know, those who have often, you know, so this whole rich get richer thing. That's true in a lot of systems, but it is a problem. <clears throat> Jeez, my throat. But at any rate, <laughs> so we've we've gone over a whole bunch of stuff having to do with um, how how sports and are being impacted possibly by uh, by esports and by games in general. And man, I think that I think that towards the end, especially when we started to get really off into the weeds, I felt like it it raised a lot more questions because we were getting into some fairly heavy conjecture it'd be really interesting uh, to do a study on these sorts of things and really get some answers but i think what we can yeah, say know, is if we, if we took five minutes and uh collected our thoughts and then i think came back we should have this all sorted out in about three years of constant talking <laughs> we might want to do a little research <laughs> 
got five minutes. That's it's true, it's true enough. <laughs> it's true enough. Nah. So uh, I will say though that I, I need to take a short a short break to kind of clear my throat up. So we're gonna walk away from this for a few seconds, folks, and you're gonna hear some music probably going right now, and then we'll be right back like magic in a few seconds, and we'll do our last section, and, and life will be great. Well, welcome back, everybody. That was a, uh, a short break, actually, for uh, for us as well, but probably not as short as that was with the music and stuff. Hopefully I picked something good. Uh, say in the comments if it was bad. No, don't say that. Say if it was good. Don't say anything if it was bad. Anyway, we're going to do the games we played in this last week's section now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we, in the first game I wanted to talk about was uh, Atelier Sophie which is part of a big series of games that's at least more popular in Japan, I guess. It's the Atelier series. There's several, like, Atelier, put a name here, and the only one that I've played is Sophie. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a crafting game, which is kind of a strange thing to hear come out of my mouth because I'm not usually into crafting in games. Um, Though I've been getting... You spent a lot of time in Sims crafting houses. No, I was not crafting. I was building... I swear there's a difference here. It's actually, <laughs> now that you've said that, I'm kind of like, what is the difference exactly? I think the thing that is different to me, though, is like with Sophie, um, you're going out, you're gathering materials. This is this is a lot like Monster Hunter in a lot of ways. You go out, you're, you're grabbing materials. You have to beat up monsters if they get in your way, et cetera. And then you have to like discover recipes and you've got to put all the ingredients together properly inside of the recipes. And they've got this really cool like little mini game. Like you get this cauldron and it's got like this five by five grid and then all the ingredients turn into like Tetris-esque shapes. And then there's all these spots on the five by five grid that are like, hey, if you put a piece here, then you're going to get more points. So basically it's it's like an RPG with crafting elements combined with, I don't know, uh, Bejeweled <laughs> or something. I don't, I've never played any of those games, so I don't really know if, if it compares or not, but... I've just found it really interesting. Um, every time that you go in to do a recipe, every time you go to craft something, it all the shapes of the ingredients are going to be a little bit different and the board's going to be a little bit different. So it's like every experience is kind of a, a fresh thing. Uh, so I've hmm. really been enjoying it quite a lot. And it's super chill. Oh my goodness. It is such a chill game. Especially when you figure out that you don't need to worry about dying too much because there's really low penalties for it. So you can just kind of do whatever you want. But what I've really been noticing and thought would be interesting to talk about is the way that they do storytelling is very interesting to me because the story is not based on location, which is what I'm used to. Like they say, Oh, now now I need to go halfway across the world and cross this ocean and we'll get to Midgar again. And then we've got to fight diamond weapon. I'm not talking about a particular game here, but let's pretend like a lot of games are just location based in a lot of ways. And this one's all about not a game that has NFTs associated with it. Final fantasy Seven has NFTs associated with it now. I'm sorry. We have to stop what we were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to know. But uh, (laughs) there's NFTs and everything. Is it really Final Fantasy Seven? How? Like it's an old game. How do you do that? Because it had the re-release that came out recently. It got a boost in popularity. And then Square Enix decided it would be the flagship for their NFTs, which is just missing the whole point a square but, uh, a square a square <laughs> stop just stop don't do it anyway the nft market's crashing so hopefully i don't have to hear anything else about that it's just ridiculous 
Um, <laughs> the NFTs in Final Fantasy. I'm not angry. I'm fine. So Atelier <laughs> Sophie. <laughs> but the thing that I like about how the story is unfolded in Atelier Sophie is that it's based on the recipes you unlock and also random interactions with people in town. So there's, there's a town nearby where you can go to buy some materials and to get some things crafted. Um, some of it's convenient. Some of it is required because you can only get materials from them. But every time you start talking to folks in town, it progresses a storyline with that character. And every time you, there's certain recipes that once you research them, they progress the main story, which is about this magical book that's actually a, uh, well, there's a whole story there, and I don't want to ruin it for people. But uh, yeah, you've got a magic book that's uh, very interesting. <laughs> and as you d- as you unlock more spells, you learn more about this book, and then things change about. It's just it's fun. It's really fun, and it's really chill, and it's kind of a novel. I'm sure there are other games that tell stories like this, but it's the first time I've experienced it, and I find it refreshing because the the level grinding none of it feels necessary to me because you unlock spells through crafting and there's a lot of ways to do that not just going out and and fighting things and gathering materials um Mm. so it it feels like you can literally go in whatever direction you want because there's so many ways to unlock uh there's so many ways to unlock recipes you can go whichever direction and you're still unlocking the story i was like this is really cool no matter what i do i'm unlocking story this is this is great every game should be like this okay final fantasy 14 should be like this particularly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what I was thinking, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I did just you I ever, thought it was Did you ever get into Hades? A little bit. It's it, a little bit. Was Hades because I got through like the first because I played it back when they only had the first area opened up. Um, mm. I remember yeah. that it was interesting for a roguelike because every time you died, you just kind of started again and you you'd learn more about the people in the main place and the story yeah, progress. Th- yeah. th- that's what it brought it to my mind is like, it doesn't really matter too much what you're doing. There's usually going to be something new for you when you get yeah. back to town. Yeah. It's, it's similar ish to that vein, but I think if we're, if we're kind of taking the hundred thousand foot view and saying the similarity is that your ability to progress, to progress, pardon me, progress, the, your ability to, pr- to progress your character's levels is not the main driver of the story. It, it feels like the story is kind of mm. decentralized. You can you can you can approach the story from a lot of different directions, and it's just refreshing because I know in a lot of RPGs, especially JRPGs, um, they can feel really grindy because if you want the story to keep going, you have to be at a higher level, and it it kind of yeah. like you're you're not able to get into a particular area because you're going to be murdered to death going into or sometimes they actually just have a lock like until you beat this boss you can't go to the next area and it's like. But, but I feel so restricted and I don't really feel that way with Atelier Sophie. So yeah, I think that if folks have not played these games and I'd even say this to you, Cedric, I think that the aesthetic of the game actually would be something you'd really enjoy. Um, it does sound interesting. I am curious how much of it is not that those locks don't exist, but that the focus of the game is on tasks and, uh, challenges that you're not used to dealing with could be, and in doing so, you're not noticing that you have a natural affinity for them. It could be, or that, yeah. just is more related to stuff that you do in everyday life. It's possible, and I, I think I've kind of noticed a little bit of that. I've been talking to the person who, who suggested the game to me, um, and was mentioning to her that like, um, 
I, I've always wanted to play games where you can just explore and by just kind of exploring, you just incidentally um, unlock the story or unlock things that then unlock the story. And that's kind of how the game works. Discovering new recipes in the game, sometimes it's from defeating a random monster. Uh, sometimes it's from going to a random place. Sometimes it's from buying something from somebody and you just randomly get inspiration to unlock a recipe. Um, sometimes it's from doing another recipe in a particular way. So that's got a particular trait or effect that'll unlock another recipe. Like there's, there's a zillion ways to do it. And what she kept telling me, cause I, I kept like, it was so weird for me. It was almost an existential crisis. Cause I was like, but I need somebody to hold my hand and tell me where to go with the story. You don't understand. Like I was freaking out. It's like, am I, am I doing this wrong? And she was like, there's no way to do it wrong. There's no, like, calm down. There's no way to do it wrong. Just go explore and do the thing and the story will happen. Just relax. <laughs> and I'm sitting here like falling apart because I'm like, I've, and I've told you this many times before, I'd, I'd love to have a game. Um, well, maybe I don't tell you this very often, but I'm sure I've mentioned before that I'd, I'd love to have a game where you just go and explore and do random stuff and the story just kind of happens. And now I'm playing one and I can't handle it, it seems. <laughs> at least at first I couldn't. But yeah, it, it does kind of let I you kinda, just explore, which is what I do like to do. So I kind of wonder if you made a visual novel and instead of having it be like, here's this random choice that you got, it was just a bunch of nonsense decisions and like you take control of the character during the opera that they're performing and it just doesn't matter how well you do at it mm -hmm. how popular that game would be mm. if you had points where you technically defined everything about what the character did but none of it mattered I don't know if people would feel powerless at that point because it's not that I'm... Uh, well, the the other thing is that, like, they don't necessarily know that it doesn't matter. Oh. Mm. I'm sure that people that sit down and speed run the game or people that watch the gaming space and have it all relayed back to them, it's like, they'll probably notice. But for the average player, if you just give them a game to play through once, they probably don't think about it enough to really True. notice that this didn't matter if I did it right. I did it right because I wanted to get it right. The, the, to be fair, I've had games that I've played before where I noticed that I've made a bunch of decisions and they didn't impact the outcome and I get really annoyed. So I don't know, but it's, it's an interesting question. But it's a difference between making a decision and controlling because you make dozens of decisions if you're playing a freeform style of an instrument. But if those decisions don't matter to your score at the end of the song. Mm. Does that still make it feel bad? Mm. Interesting question. I don't know, but I don't know if that's what Sophie is, which is what we're talking about. <laughs> but I, I do, I do think that's an interesting question because it is, it is kind of the essence of the thing still, which is like, can you kind of make it so that the story is not reliant on mechanics and still have it feel natural is a good question. I don't know, mm. but in the, I think this is the closest that I've been able to come for myself because I think that advancing the story based on uh, exploration and discovery is really close to that. It's not the same thing, but you know, like the story gets advanced through what sometimes feels like random events because you'll just like you'll walk up to a rock on a map you've never been on and go to collect something. 
And suddenly your character will be like, ah, I just figured out a recipe. I've been inspired. And then by being inspired by that, it will unlock the master recipe that allows you to move on to the next section of the recipe book. So, you know, you should play it and then we can maybe talk about it more. So Atelier Sophie, buy now on Steam and other Definitely things. nothing like Minecraft. <laughs> Is that what we're talking about next? <laughs> <laughs> Modded, I thought look it at, was a good segue. Look at that segue. Look at that segue. <laughs> so modded Minecraft was the thing you said has been your veg out game recently? Yeah, just kind of something to go make a little progress in. You know, you pick up an item, it flashes all these new recipes that you can do, and then you make those, and it gives you more recipes to do, and then you make those, and it gives you... And yes, in theory, there's similar. an end to the game, but... <laughs> No one does that. It would be Atelier Sophie if sometimes when you unlocked particular recipes, your companion that's been going around with you would suddenly morph into new forms. Then it then it'd be very similar. <laughs> so you'll have to now, play the to game to fair, understand I, what I mean. <laughs> I do have a raccoon that sometimes morphs into a problem. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> oh man. So, but you, you mentioned that was just kind of a veg out game for you these days, but you mentioned it was like modded Minecraft. Is there a reason you say modded versus like just Minecraft? So in vanilla Minecraft, um, you don't have a lot of complexity. Uh, you have the basic mechanics of the game and they're adding more to it. Uh, but there's just not that much depth to the different trees or not trees, but not that much depth to the actual crafting of the game. Mm. Um, you can build machines out of redstone, but then you're getting more into abstract programming, which is a little too close to the yeah. job. That's what I do for a living. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> um, it's fun when I'm not actively doing that every day, but like, I've not really had the drive to sit down and build bulky computers in my spare time. Fair enough. Um, the mods add the depth back into the game in that regard. They're, instead of just like, here's this new material, you can make these same three products. You instead have stuff like, here's this new material. It makes a specific element of this machine. And now you can use that machine to make a new material that oh. will then let you alloy with the old material that then lets you craft this item that lets you harvest this other material. And it like starts to bring a lot more of the real world complexity into Minecraft. And depending on the mods that you pick up, you can have a lot of them that focus very much on the real world. Uh, the reason I got back into modded Minecraft was because a friend wanted to try out the create mod pack, which has mm. a lot of stuff going on about getting, um, it's still very watered down compared to the real world. You don't have to worry about shear forces or anything like that, but it's very much about getting uh, mechanical advantage. You know, you build water wheels, you have to know how much torque those are providing to be able to do the right amount of pressure on the recipes that then allow you to build uh, or to press metals that then you build water tanks and into a huh. mechanical steam boiler. And I feel like I'm listening to practical engineering suddenly on YouTube. <laughs> right? And uh, it's all very watered down to make it into a game state rather than I'm just starting a new career, mm. um, which can make it fun. And it also 
takes it from something that requires a lot of reactivity, which if you're dead at the end of the day is hard to do, mm. uh, into something that is more, I'm going to go wander into this cave and, oh, oh, hey, look, I need this specific thing. I'm going to spend some time collecting it mm. and then I'm going to leave. Interesting. Uh, a little bit now, more relaxing in that sense. Minecraft isn't the best game for that, though, because the random mobs do have the ability to just catch you in situations that you weren't prepared for. And I'm having to learn to really rein in how far I go afield when I'm collecting resources, Hmm. because if you can't get back to where you're at without any resources that aren't at your home base, uh, you just lost everything. And usually that means losing tools that you had on your person that could take several hours to get back. And that is a shitty feeling. I usually just restart the game at that point. <laughs> yeah, that's never fun. I hate, I hate, like, this is just true of me in general with games. Like, if I'm playing a game and I forget to save for a while, this is an example of this mm-hmm. anyway. And I've made a bunch of progress and then I die and realize I'm going to have to start over um, from yeah. some much earlier save. I just won't play the game for a couple weeks. Like, I get so frustrated. It's like, I can't do this. By the way, I just yeah. noticed that my my iPad that we're doing this conversation through is down to six percent. It's hanging in like a trooper, though. Fun, fun. Ah, <laughs> uh, anything else you wanted to say about modded Minecraft? That sounds interesting. People should play that as well because why not do mechanical engineering in Minecraft? They need to introduce a um, physics engine so there, they can there's have also a, if you want something more nonsensical. There's a lot of them that have. Uh, ritual magic style tints to them. So rather than having to sit there and learn about real world mechanics, you can learn about how uh, putting sparkly stuff onto rocks makes it go kaboom. See, now we're back to Atelier Sophie again, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No. I I don't mean to sound derogatory towards those mods. I tend to actually prefer them over the mechanical engineering stuff because... Uh, you know, mechanical engineering is a bit real world problem solving, yeah. whereas the more mystic stuff is like, that is novel. That is fun. Mm-hmm. That is not something I get to do in the real world. Well, that's another vote for Minecraft and two more votes for Atelier. So, so we're going to play Atelier Sophie is what you're going to do. Apparently, <laughs> I'm, I'm scared to have you play that one because you're going to find all the problems with it. <laughs> but uh, I yeah. think it's fun. Um so let's move on to, we've both got one more game we're going to do. I wanted to talk about Frostpunk just really briefly because um, mm. I watched Markiplier play it. He had a playthrough like a year ago, and it was really interesting. Uh, the playthrough especially is interesting. I would encourage everybody to go watch his playthrough because there's a bunch of big decisions that you have to make in the game about laws that kind of dictate the direction of your strategy, and he let the he was streaming it, and he let the people watching the stream decide and yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> it's pretty funny to watch Marco Parr be angry about every decision that they make. For from the most part. what I remember about that game, it is very, very difficult to steer yourself away from some sort of autocratic state. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's interesting because the game is apparently from the same folks who did this War of Mine, which is all about making very mm-hmm. difficult, sad decisions. And I've found that Frostpunk in my play, which has only been for a few hours. So don't shoot me if you play this a whole bunch and no better. But if you're listening, 
but uh, what I've noticed is that the game is really because a lot of city builders are about like growing things, you know, yeah. like you're, you're trying to increase the population. You're trying to you're trying to get people to reproduce, basically, and then you're trying to build bunches of buildings and get more money and, and all this sort of stuff. And Frostpunk has a lot of those elements, but a lot of Frostpunk is attrition. Like you yeah, start it, with it's this, all in service of trying to stop the decline yeah it's almost like you're just trying to stave off everybody's eventual destruction is <laughs> kind of how it fills and i'm sure there's like a win state i haven't gotten far enough to see things so i apologize for like this isn't intended as a review it's just kind of my early thoughts I've on the game never seen anyone play endgame in frostpunk i would not be surprised if there was just no way <laughs> there's of no surviving there everybody dies like I've gotten to the point where I'm starting to build bigger technologies and I'm starting to have to really consider like where I'm going to allocate people because <clears throat> you need like, you've got 80 people and you need 10 people on about 20 different machines in order for them to work at full mm. capacity. So <clears throat> you got to decide, do you want wood? Do you want steel? Do you want coal? And all of them matter a heck of a lot for very different reasons. It's, it's a very interesting game because it forces you to make very difficult decisions. And you know when you decide to pursue one thing that you're giving up something that matters to you. And that's just been really interesting. Then people start dying off because, at least in my playthroughs, because I I haven't been able to keep them alive. And you have less people. And it's not like they're creating more people. This isn't like SimCity or something where the population just kind of increases. And, you know, or Tropico is another game that's kind of similar, but you just, you bring in new immigrants all the time. People reproduce all the time. Like... It's it's nothing like those games. I know that there are ways to bring in more people, and I I haven't been super successful with that yet. But a lot of it just feels like we're running out of people. And every time you lose a few people, it has or or even if you just lose them to sickness, because when they get sick, they take a day off. Um, if you let them, otherwise they just kind of die, and it's bad for morale, which is also not a great thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, the game the game is. I don't want to say it's punishing because I only feel like a game's punishing if you weren't warned like i think you go into frostpunk knowing that this is going to be just that kind of game um but yeah like people will get sick and you feel it like you really feel it you can see production going down you can and then you start to wonder like if enough people get sick are we going to be able to even do enough production to keep things heated because if we can't keep things heated we're all going to freeze to death will we have enough food or we're going to starve to death if enough people get sick are the doctors going to be sick and then they can't heal people like it's just it's crazy it's been really fun though um, it's, it's my counterbalance to playing Atelier Sophie, which is just completely happy all the time. So, you know, it's been you got really fun. That is not a word I would associate with Frostpunk. <laughs> Have you played it? I've seen people play it. Um, it just, the entire idea, the theming behind it though is so, it's so depressing. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man. But like, I, the the games that I've seen and the, that I've heard people talk about of Frostpunk, mm-hmm. um, and you might plug your ears if you don't want some minor spoilers, <laughs> like how the game is probably going to go for you in the future. Um, even if you're getting everything going right, you start having to make really horrible decisions because it's not a comfy world. And when people don't have a lot of comfort for a very long period of time, they do stupid and very shitty things. So then you're sitting there trying to balance out like, do I try and keep them happy at the cost of resources? Do I just like 
buckle down on the strictness of the thing? Do I try and balance the two? And there's just no good answer. Yeah. That's well, that's, that is the point of the game. That phrase right there, there's no good answer is probably the point of the entire game. And it makes it interesting to play, but it doesn't make it happy. It makes it interesting. <clears throat> but I, I, I'd have to agree with you. It's kind of a tragedy in a lot of senses. And I'm sorry, my voice is a tragedy right now. It's just kind of going away. But um, it's, yeah, there's really there's really no, no good answer. The game's going to end poorly. I remember watching Markiplier's playthrough. And just the way that it ends is like, wow. Okay, well, <laughs> that's one way for things to go. He mentioned at some point that you could use the pile of corpses to go to cannibalism. And I was like, wow, so it's that kind of game. <laughs> It's, it's not happy. That's not the point. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, well, that's the last thing I'm going to say about Frostpunk because my voice is trying to escape. And now we're going to mm-hmm. let Sedgwick talk about how terrible Stray is because everybody likes that game and CJ's calling Stray. in life is to complain about how much-loved games are actually terrible. So what's wrong it with Stray? <laughs> the worst game. Is the worst game there has ever been. Since Elden Ring. Wow. Wow. That is, that's pretty cutting pretty deep. That's pretty mean. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get more insults from saying that Stray is a bad game or implying that Elden Ring is a bad game. I mean, I think to you just, clear. I think you just implied that Stray is going to be game of the year along with Elden Ring, right? <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, they're both fine games. They're, they're both good games. Even uh, Stray is a lot of fun when you are being a cat running around a city. Who doesn't like being a kitty? Stray doesn't do great when you're talking about having a narrative with that theme. And it doesn't do great when it's trying to do set piece moments. Mm. Um, and in general, I think Stray falls into the habit of interacting with the player through restrictions. Like it is not really a game that says come to this world and these will be the tools that you use to do amazing things. It is you're not allowed to do this until we say so. And you're not going to have a lot of options unless we decide that you can do something cool. Mm. Kind of open on that. Uh, So because we all know that games kind of have to have restrictions, but you've got to be very careful in hiding them, I would think. Well, it's also how you use them. You know, there's a lot of things that you can't do in a game like Elden Ring. Uh, climbing, <laughs> chief among them. <laughs> Your character in Dark Souls games and FromSoft games has always been fairly heavy. Um, can't swim either. And you don't really notice those restrictions because it's not really something they focus on in the game. I don't care that I can't climb a sheer rock face because I'm trying to not get stabbed, <laughs> mm. you know, priorities. Um, so this is kind of like there are some games where it's kind of a wandering game. You're supposed to walk around and you can go anywhere you want, except for through the invisible wall that seems to be in the forest. Yes. Okay. That is, that is part of it. <laughs> and you, you can find this a lot. And one of the things that really stuck with me about Stray is there's a lot of points where you make some really impressive jumps. And cats make really impressive jumps. It doesn't take you out of the immersion. What does take me out of the immersion is not being able to do a two-foot-high jump because that's 
just not somewhere that Boo. they wanted you to go. Um, there's other little world details that are less important. The fact that there is all this hostile architecture, uh, all these barbed things that is on top of areas that are ostensibly barren and empty and have no sign of, you know, trouble as far as like things being up there. Mm. There's not really any birds, so I don't know why they put spikes on top of all their ACs. Are are people sitting on the ACs too often? You've beaten the game, right? Yeah. Because the, the, it was open at one point. Maybe they were built back then? No, because uh, like the, the city was designed for the lockdown. People weren't living in there until it was closed off. Oh, well. Maybe they brought their air conditioners from outside, <laughs> but I see your point. And like put the spikes back on because like, they like the aesthetic. As I've said, as I've said many times, I don't particularly care for world building where you have to make up an excuse for the writer. Like, and I, that's what I'm doing right yeah. now. So that is kind of weird, and it's just to make the environment appear more hostile, right? <clears throat> it's to prevent you from getting to places that you're not supposed to. Oh, I like see. they wanted this platform to not be. The, accessible but they wanted to have junk there because it looks impressive now to be to be clear to anybody still listening at this point first off why no just kidding thank you for staying around um so stray is part of my effort i mentioned this during the last podcast but i really feel it's important if you enjoyed watching a game watching somebody play a game um that you if you can get the game because you enjoyed the game you just were watching somebody else who, who paid for it. So Frostpunk, I mentioned before that I'd watch Markiplier's playthrough, and that's and I loved it, so that's why I got the game um, and have been playing it. But I watched Stray with Gab Smolders and Jack Septicai, both of them actually, and I uh, I did, wasn't inclined to play it myself because I'd just seen the entire story. So why? So I got it for Sedgic instead, and so that's mm-hmm. and so that's why we're able to talk about it, which is kind of nice. But one thing I will say is that. This is an interesting difference between you and Jacksepticeye. Like they're just trying to play the game to to show off the story, essentially, and they're not really trying to push boundaries. They're not they're not wandering sorts of people for the most part. They want they're they're more focused on uh, creating YouTube content. So of course they're going to follow the story. That's what's interesting. So it's interesting. Like I never noticed what you're talking about. Like the fact that you can't go into certain places never really struck me because they were just following the story, but. Well, it the, did. The, the world, is, like, the world it, feels the very game, open. Well, the reason I say it is because, like, if I'd played the game myself, I think I would have noticed because the world feels very yeah. open, and I would have definitely tried to challenge the boundaries and would have run the into them too. The game wants you to challenge the boundaries because they hide secrets throughout those open yeah, world yeah, segments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They Good want point. you to explore, and in a lot of the exploring, I'm also solving a lot of these puzzles that they definitely didn't intend for me to be solving in that point in time. There's a point in time where I'm like, oh, this guy asked me to do this thing. I guess now I have a cassette tape. Where can I use that? Well, I'll put it in the boom box. And that just True. let me steal a helmet. Why do I need a helmet? And that is <laughs> so counter to the way that the story is presented that it kind of messes it up a little bit. Mm. And it also like, I don't know if I would have been able to attach it like their solutions to the actual story, even if I had found it properly. Like, how was I supposed to know that these guys had this random cassette tape 
that would allow me to distract the store clerk so that I could steal the hard hat. So that the, like, it is such a convoluted chain of events that if it, I didn't stumble across it, mm. I don't know if I would have found it. That's almost like old like, school Sierra adventure game stuff, you know? Yeah, it really is. There's Which actually for anybody who's been following our towards show. the end of the game <laughs> where there's a action set piece mm. and you're escaping from this prison and like the robot lets you jump on them and then you jump through a window that's like 12 feet high. Three doors down, you have to point out to the robot that there's keys in this car that then allows them to back the car up to a fence so that you can get a two foot jump boost to get over the fence. <laughs> and it's just consistency like, problems. why did I not just stand on your shoulders, which are four feet above what I needed? True. It's like, and it's, it's interesting that that kind of inconsistency can show up. I know it's a small team. Uh, yeah. More or less it did stray. And I don't think that either of us are trying to say that therefore stray is a bad game. But it is um, no. it is interesting. Um, th- these all feel like kind of world building problems. And to go back to what you're saying about um, Elden Ring, well, it's almost that adventure game problem. Like they had an intended solution, and they tried to force they the world backwards. onto that solution. I, I will admit that when I was watching the playthroughs, I felt that way several times. Like this feels like somebody had yeah. an idea for a puzzle, and then they made the world kind of fit with that. And while that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the worst thing in the world, it has to be done extremely carefully. It's a very game problem. Yeah, it really is. But overall, I think the game was really quite good. And I will say this about Stray, which is that I loved how they told a very competent story, in my opinion, a very competent story, in a very short period of time. I was raging on about this last podcast, so of course I've got to bring it up again. I thought they told a very good story in just a few hours. Um, the game felt like it wasn't really wasting your time, uh, except for some of the puzzles. Sometimes were like, really? Like you sit and think about things because they're illogical in the Sierra game sort of fashion. But for the most part, it felt I like, think, oh God. I think as someone that has played through near automated completion and has watched someone play through, um, what was it? Near, uh, Recoded? No. The the <laughs> reboot of the original Nier. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Having seen both of those stories, um, I don't know how much stray developers had seen of them, but it is very similar. And about halfway through the story when they're like, oh, this is a person in here, and they started leaning on the tragedy of the world, and I was just like... Yeah. But like Been even there, even that. even near Automata wasn't like the first to hit that particular plot point. It's it's a common yeah. dystopian future sort of thing. Um, True, you're going to see it in a lot of games, uh, and so I'm not I'm not going to hold that against them. I thought the story was interesting. I'm not saying it was groundbreaking because I don't know if there are stories that are groundbreaking anymore, but it was very good. Um, I thought the characters were interesting. I I was sympathetic to them at least. And I just thought it was great that they could tell it in such a short period of time. Because going back to Nier Automata, that takes a long time to beat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I know because I still haven't beat it. I also had it. a thought <laughs> the other night that if you're looking at it from the cat's point of view, yeah, the story is Fievel. It's <laughs> not wrong. <laughs> oh, man. But uh, I think that that... It, I think, I think were near misses, though. <laughs> But overall, I still would recommend Stray to folks, I think. 
despite some misgivings. Um, clearly, it's going to yeah. be game of the year. Cedric was comparing it to Elden Ring, which everybody knows is going to be game of the year. So, it is a bit. I think the main thing I hold against Stray, though, and this is like a leveled complaint rather than oh, I'm nitpicking the game. Mm-hmm. It is not super accessible. Um, mm. It is going to be more friendly to players than Elden Ring, but because it has a more friendly aesthetic than Elden Ring as well, you're going to get more people that bounce off of it when they run into difficulties. Mm. And a lot of this isn't necessarily stuff that you would really think about at first glance. The game is very taxing. Like I know my computer's not in the best of shape right now, but having to lower it down to 1280 by 720 and then turn off all of the features and still wonder if my computer is going to manage to not overheat running the game as it dips below 30 FPS. Small teams have optimization issues, but this is super intense for a game that doesn't have a whole lot of mechanics that require high crunch on the physics. And you're not, you're not the first person I've heard throw that thought out there. Um, I think it's supposed to be a little bit better on console than on mm-hmm. like the optimization is apparently better for console than it is for PC. It usually is, but they also usually target just lower performance in general. Yeah, um, no, I agree. I agree. Especially so they, Cyberpunk. They could they, that. Cyberpunk the other... uh, had really low performance on the early PS4s, for example. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> the the other side that makes it inaccessible is they didn't really put a whole lot of thought and design into their encounters specifically mm. around the Zerks, right? Zerks? Yeah. Yeah. I believe. Um, the first encounter in the game is I think the most difficult encounter in the game. And that's a problem. <laughs> Cause it really should be um, later that that happens. <laughs> And in general, it shouldn't really happen in that game. You don't need that difficulty. And in fact, the difficulty of that first chase sequence detracts from the tension that it gives to the game. Because by the time I'm on my third death at that point, and all tension is gone. And I'm not an incompetent gamer, but the fact is that they designed a chase sequence that forces you to know that you need to swerve in a game where your only interaction with the world is where you jump and whether or not you meow. (laughs) I do think you hit on a very important game design point, which is like chase scenes, especially but a lot of encounters just kind of in general, if you want it to be stressful and interesting, like a good sort of stressful, then you've got to have it be something that you can beat in one or two tries sometimes because the yeah. the more the more times a person has to redo something, it, it removes the tension and just replaces it with frustration. You know? I think the master class of this is actually Dead Space 2. The introductory hmm. scene to that, your character can barely walk. Like the limping animations that you see in Stray are your average move speed at the start of Dead Space 2. Hmm. But it is a full-blown chase sequence with explosions, monsters jumping out of every corner. You nearly avoid death like four or five times. It is near impossible to fail that. You have to stand still for a good 10 seconds. Yeah, you got you to make it look good, it actually but mechanically you. have it be relatively simple. So, Yeah. 
And it still holds that tension for probably the first two or three times you play it. After that, yeah, you kind of know it's a set piece. And to be fair, that's most of Dead Space 2 where it's like, this is very bombastic and entertaining, but it it is a set piece game. Mm. But you look at something like Stray and they're like, we want those set piece. We want this chase sequence, but they put in a whole bunch of mechanics. The Zerks were just they designed them like they wanted to have a single Zerk chasing you in a lot of points. And then they decided we need to have more. So what if they we had a hundred extras without <laughs> changing it. Mm. And what this does is the fact that Zerks force you to the walking speed. As soon as one touches you, I mean, you usually get five on you, which means you can't get the mop, which means you lose, even though the, idea of one jumping on you isn't supposed to be fatal because you have the shake off button. Yeah, fair enough. And the other thing that happens with this is they disable your ability to jump, which really becomes a problem when you're dealing with a place that is mostly an open space. So there's like points where they turn them into a puzzle and there's like three inch high barriers that you have to jump up onto because that's how the game does uh, parkour mm. and you don't really think about it that much but then as soon as one of them manages to do its attack because that's the only time they jump and latches onto you and you're just stuck on a cardboard box as the rest of them jump up onto you because you can't move anywhere mm. and you can't jump down from this to start moving because it disabled that option mm. There's just a lot of stuff around the Zergs that feels like it wasn't really thought through. Yeah. It sounds like the game kind of suffers from some of those. They they feel like kind of indie problems because you wonder if like Mm -hmm. extended play testing might have caused these things to be sorted out. But it, it also feels like they just didn't know what to do with them because the sequence where you have the Zerks coming out of the tower mm-hmm. and you're in the, or you're waiting for the elevator to come down classic zombie movie sequence. Mm-hmm. Very, very boring for anyone that has seen that set piece in the game before, like mm. way more boring than just having me run down a tunnel. <laughs> so in the end, because I don't get to enjoy the sensation of being the cat because I'm, having to deal with the puzzle of the Zerks, but the puzzle is literally run in a circle and there's one jump in the circle that gives you a little bit of breathing room. So I have to do that for three minutes. I have to ask after all these comments, like out of five sombreros, what would you rate the game? If I was actually like I had just picked this game up on my own, because I will admit there was a bit of pressure for me to get through the game so we could talk about it. Uh, like, not that you told me I had to finish the game, but like I want to finish the game making on me, time. Making me sound like a jerk over here. <laughs> um, probably four bowler hats out of five sombreros. Four bowler hats out of five sombreros. That's not bad. So still a, no, that's still a no, solid it's recommend. A, it's a competent game. Yeah. The parts where you're exploring the town, uh, if you can forgive the puzzle game nature of it, where you have very nonsensical solutions, are gen- genuinely fun. And just being able to be like, 
I got up on top of this building and I'm a cat, so I'm going to knock this pot over. <laughs> 10 out <laughs> because of 10. Cat. <laughs> they captured the essence but, of being a cat. Whenever they start trying to force you into the plot, you know, there's this gray area at the start of the game where it's like, you're a cat. How much of this are you understanding? Yeah. And then at the end of the game, it's like, no, this is a super intelligent cat that knows how to program, basically. Clearly. Yeah. Um, so it, it gets weird. <laughs> but without, you know, too many spoilers. Yeah. But yeah, like uh, I, I really enjoyed watching it being played at least. And I thought the plot was pretty good. Um, I liked they had a good economy and, and got through things in a good amount of time rather than stretching things out, at least mm-hmm. in my opinion. So I can't, I'm not going to rate it because I didn't play it, but I think four out of five, four bowler hats out of five Sumbros sounds good to me. So, yep. But I think, I think my iPad says we're going to run out of power. So we get to be done now. <laughs> That's the best way to end one of these. I, I'm telling you, this was just an excuse to keep us on task. Probably, probably. No, 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 no. We're good. It if I was trying to keep well. us, if I was trying to keep us on task, I wouldn't have had us talk about sports ball for an hour. <laughs> But I thought that discussion was interesting, and I, I hope that uh, the listeners enjoyed that because I really thought that was quite cool. Uh, hopefully, we yeah. have an interesting conversation next time as well. So. And I do want to say one more thing about Stray because oh. I feel like I was fairly negative about it uh, throughout a lot of the conversation and then gave it a high review. A uh, big part of that is because there is a lot of very good effort put into animations, the world is very interesting to roam around. It's very good setting, very good lore, everything. Yeah. And then you have these things that stick out and kind of lodge themselves into the, your mind because they just don't fit. It's, it's a game that's just that right amount of good that when things are bad, it really kind of stays. <laughs> it's like, ah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you're just at that threshold. Just at Stray, you're just at that threshold right there. So, but that's, that's a compliment in its own way. At least it's not so terrible yeah. that like you lose track of all the terribleness. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh man, me and alive. And if I'm going to, I guess the game I could rate though would be Frostpunk out of my two hours I've played it. So my initial first impression though would be like definitely four bowler hats out of five umbrellas. I think that works. But yeah, uh, yeah Frostpunk's a good game too, I think. Though you've got to go in into it knowing that like it's going to be about attrition. It's sad. So Very anyway, sad. speaking of attrition, my voice. Oh, <clears throat> but uh, but thank you, thank you, Cedric. Uh, for anybody who's made it to the end, thank you. I wish there was a prize. There's not. Maybe one day there will be. Um, but yeah, uh, really appreciate everybody who was able to hang out to this point, and uh, really hoping that next week we'll be able to do it again. I think I hit that too late. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thank you for joining us on Open. We'll see you later. Bye. <laughs>